the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Behold, the Swanson Pyramid of Greatness. I've been developing the Swanson Pyramid of Greatness for years. It's a perfectly calibrated recipe for maximum personal achievement. Categories include capitalism, God's way of determining who is smart and who is poor, crying, acceptable at funerals and the Grand Canyon, rage, poise, property rights, fish, For sport only, not for meat. Fish meat is practically a vegetable. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Hoffman, and welcome to the main event and our stupid music that we none of us like. Sticks will be back shortly. We're going to talk. I got my in-studio guest, Mr. Joey Jones, retired uh, sergeant in the Marines. Yes, that's great right. guy. Uh, very controversial to uh, some things that I think are uh, one way, and uh, and but you know what? We're both conservatives. We both love military guys. We both love our country. We both love freedom. We both love uh, we both love to support people that take care of us. And uh, dead gummit, we're going to talk about a fun stuff, Joey. Well, you know what? Let me let me get the, let me get the start going, and then we'll talk about why Joey's sitting in my studio today instead of being on the phone like uh, about ten other times he's been on my show. Mm-hmm. Can you stand by for a second here, Joey? Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. Okay, so hey, before we go any further, let me introduce myself. My name's Ed Hoffman, President Wholesale Capital, your local direct mortgage lender. If you're interested in getting involved in any of the fantastic opportunities that are real estate. Much of which I don't talk about on the radio very often, but we will a little bit today. Uh, call me toll free at 855-640-2020. That's 855-640-2020. And one last time, day or night, toll free, area code 855-640-2020. If you want to get in touch with me, but you don't want to talk on the phone because you're stealing time from your boss and you don't want your neighbors at work to hear your stuff anyway, go to my website, wccloans.com. So you'll find all kinds of mortgage information there to apply for a loan. Go to Loan Center and hit Apply Now. If you'd like to email me first, uh, you'll find me on the contact page or just go to Ed Hoffman at WCCLoans.com. Um, if there's any part of the show you want repeated, you can get the uh, show repeated at edhoffman.net. Click on the podcast page. You can listen to it on demand or you can get the main event podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes where you can subscribe for free, have it download to your uh, your iPhone, your iPod, your iPad, your computer your droid whatever kind of a whatever kind of a appliance you use to listen to podcasts um be sure to connect uh, with the show on social media follow me on twitter at ed hoffman where i tweet about current events all week long some weeks more than others and uh like the show on facebook at facebook.com slash the main event at hoffman so uh i've got joey jones in the in the in town here today and uh, Joey's coming in to help us with our first annual WCC Charities uh, Gala tomorrow night, or tomorrow night, when you're listening, it'll be tonight, or it might have been yesterday night if you're listening on Sunday, um, that we're holding at the uh, at the Victoria Club. Joey, flew all the way in just for that? Yeah, thanks for having me here. I definitely flew in just for that. That's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm excited to support it. 
I'm uh, I'm excited that uh, I'm excited that you feel that way. I'm excited to support it. We're we're doing this to help uh, help veterans, wounded veterans yeah. uh, that have uh, paid tremendous uh, prices for for our freedom. And quite frankly, in my opinion, from all the veterans that I've met, wounded and some seemingly not wounded, um, it seems like the guys that we send to war, even when they come back. At, Still good looking, still all put together. They all bring home. They all bring home some experiences that have basically changed their life. Would you agree? Yeah, you know, there's a struggle there. Um, I think that there's a lot of pressure put on guys coming back from war now, uh, just through those little iPhones, through social media, and having so many people's opinions and life, you know, occurrences weighing on their shoulders, feeling like they don't measure up when really, in fact, they're they're far and beyond um, the person they believe themselves to be. I think, you know, we don't put the truth on social media. We only put the highlights there. And when you're reading everyone else's highlights, it starts to pile on you psychologically and, and makes you feel like you're a failure in some ways. I can, uh, I can, uh, I can uh, surely attest to that. Even when, even when you're seemingly very successful, um, you start reading other people's stuff, the selective stuff that they put on, and it makes you wonder if you're not measuring up. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, but we're here to tell them they're measuring up and they've got a, a helping hand with WCC charities and some of the other stuff we're involved in. So I'm yeah, excited. Absolutely. Yeah, we're uh, we're going to raise we're going to raise lots of money this weekend and um, we're actually going to kind of contribute to uh, to a project that Gary Sinise Foundation is doing as well as some other stuff. Yeah. And uh, so if you're if you're listening Saturday morning, there might still be a chance there's a there's a. I don't think we have but three or four seats left, um, but I'm assuming there might be some cancellations last minute. But if you're interested, um, what should you do? Go to WCCCharities.org if you still want to sneak in on that. And Joey will be there. He'll have some other special guests. It's going to be a patriotic, a patriotic, uh, emotional, fun-filled, fun-filled night with uh, eating and drinking and uh, having just a, a blast for a great cause. It's going to be uh, it's going to be fun. Um, so let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about about housing because that's yeah. what I do for a living. And as we talked about at the end of our show two weeks ago when you are on uh, via phone, uh, you just bought a house. Yeah, finally uh, in the process. Should be able to close in March, and it's been quite the process, I tell you. So in my opinion, you called you called me and said, hey, help me out. This is what I'm going through. What do I do next? And you're buying a house in Georgia, which I'm not licensed in Georgia. So I talked to your lender, who's actually in Tennessee, who's in Georgia, and um, and we we talked, and both her and I are both on the same page that maybe you were getting a little unclear, yeah. a little emotionally, emotionally, a little emotionally overwhelmed by the well, whole process. Yeah, well, tell the story. So this is the second house we've bought in in three years. So moved to Texas, bought a house there. Uh, came into the market before it really blew up. Took advantage of the market coming to us, and and finally sold it at a pretty good profit. Uh, and so rolling that equity that we had earned in that house, uh, which was you know over hundred thousand dollars, we we did really good on that house. Rolled that equity into our next house, and so where we're at now there in Georgia, uh, the market's starting to come alive. And uh, but I use a VA loan, which obviously doesn't require a full down payment of twenty percent. It does um, up to a certain amount, which in our area is for or right now is four hundred twenty-four thousand dollars. Is no down payment required, mm-hmm. and then twenty-five percent of whatever goes over that um, is all we have to pay as a down payment. So uh, we were looking at paying, you know, about fifty grand down anyway, but we didn't want to go over that. And um, and so long story short. 
there, there, there wasn't a good market to choose from. I think there's a lot of new builds is hurting that. And when you move to a rural area like that that's blowing up, everyone wants to get into um, a subdivision. So that's where all the comps are on small lots, and we wanted five to ten acres. So long story short, we finally found the house we wanted. We thought it was a good deal, and the VA appraiser came in seventy five grand under what we thought was a really good price. Um, and we just could not get the comps uh, through something called the Tidewater Initiative, which allows us the opportunity. Uh, we could not find the comps to substantiate the price we thought was fair, although we couldn't find anything like that uh, at that price anywhere else. So all the comps were a smaller home on smaller property, and when we adjusted them up, um, it didn't allow for our house to appraise at 550 where we thought we would be. So the uh, – so- the the VA appraiser, the VA appraiser, like any appraiser, has to go out and they have to justify the value of the house. And the and just so so everybody knows, you know, the, the definition of appraisal is the highest a buyer will pay and the lowest the seller will accept on that given day. The unfortunate part is because the bank is loaning you money based on that collateral, and because there's they're also there to protect you. They have to support that with data. And if there's no data, if you're buying a, a, an unusual house, hey, you're either going to pay either going to pay over the appraised value or accept that, hey, maybe it's not worth that much. And and the person who who came up with, hey, it's listed for five seventy five and we think it's a good deal at five fifty. You're you're making a judgment based on what you've seen and how, and basically how bad you're, how bad you want it, how bad your wife wants. And I always say when you're shopping for a, an investment property, it's all about the numbers. It's all about the numbers. You know, how does it cash flow? What's it going to cost you? What's your return on investment? And I always say buy the, buy the ugliest house in the nicest neighborhood, um, because you can improve your house to match your neighborhood. You can't improve the neighborhood to match your house. When it comes to buying a house to live in, it's all about what makes your wife happy. So, you know, hey, find out what your price is and, and whatever whatever house uh, your wife falls in love with, that's the perfect house for you. <laughs> yeah. Most of us guys, hey, we care about we care about the garage. We care about, you know, where we're going to put our big screen and, and where's my big uh, uh, Lazy Boy chair going to go. And uh, everything else is, hey, whatever whatever makes my wife happy. You know, do I have a big bathroom? Do I have a big bathroom so I can so I can style my hair and all that stuff? You know, that's a that's a wife thing. You know, if I a big bathroom, small bathroom, I'll make it work. But you know, when it, my wife wants a big closet, my wife wants this, my wife wants that. So obviously, uh, obviously, Meg fell in love with this one as well as you. Yeah, you know, and there are things about this house that we couldn't recreate and certainly couldn't find in other places. Uh, but for the age of the house, the square footage of the house, the 11 acres that came with it, the fact it was on a private drive, um, the accessibility uh, potential of the home for me to get around in my wheelchair, uh, the fact of the way the stairwell is constructed, I could put an elevator in later. Um, things like that were intangible to us, things that were necessary for my disability or or, or a handicap situation and quite frankly, even on just a square footage, 5,200 square feet, including the three-quarters finished basement, you know, it was a pretty low price per square foot. Yeah, but the problem was there's a house across the street, slightly smaller, that sold substantially under market value because that family went through a crisis. And that drove the whole market down in that area because it's a pretty small um, turnover in, in the market because a lot of people are moving the town next door where they're putting up some million-dollar homes and subdivisions. Uh, so the the market there, essentially what has happened is that there were so few homes of that size on that much property and in that price range 
that we just couldn't find comps to substantiate the price. And we, we couldn't find comps to say the price was wrong either. All we could find were smaller homes for a lot less money. Mm-hmm. Well, there were some homes that sold, but they didn't support the price. Yeah, well, and those those homes that were sold that didn't support the price also weren't the same square footage, the same amount of property. So, you know, basically what you get into is is because there weren't enough homes available uh, in the five hundred to six hundred thousand dollar range where we were buying, you can't really compare those to homes that sell three fifty to four fifty. That is um, correct, but they yeah. have to. But they have to use. So, for example, in in some of the inland empire, empire, you've got some expensive homes, but the lion's share of the houses there are much less expensive. So, you use what you have in that city, and then if there's not enough comps to support some of the improvements, then you go outside that community to support the adjustments. And it's a and it's a little more uh, it's a little more work for the appraiser, and the appraiser can't necessarily uh, charge for that. But they're there to protect you as well. And when you called originally, you were you were mad at the appraiser because he couldn't was. he couldn't yeah. do his job, and uh, say you know what, maybe it's not the appraiser, maybe it's the data. Yeah. And instead of getting mad that you're going to lose the deal, use that as leverage to go back and renegotiate your deal. And what happened? Well, that's exactly what we did. You know, the guy put the house on the market at five seventy four. And we had looked at homes in the low sixes even that were comparable, you know, eight months before. So we felt like, okay, it's under six on this much acreage in this area in this size house. This let's look at this house. We put in an offer at five fifty, which was twenty four grand under what he listed it as, and he accepted it pretty quickly. Um so when the when the appraiser came in at four seventy five and we're at five fifty, that's a seventy five thousand dollar gap. Um, you know, I told my realtor, just go back at five and we'll see where we can negotiate, but anything over five twenty five and we can't pay the difference with cash. And so I thought if I could get him to five twenty five, I'd be happy. He came back at five twenty after mm-hmm. our initial offer. So we ended up five grand under what I put as a self imposed cap. So long story short, the appraiser saved us thirty grand. Mm-hmm. Um now, with that being said, the problem was the realtor was coming at me and was saying that that specific VA appraiser was costing veterans homes all over the county. So whether or not that's true, I don't know. Because when it, when my mortgage broker pressured her to provide information on that in case we wanted to appeal, she came back and said, well, I don't have the information. That's just what I hear. So, you know, that stopped me from really blaming the appraiser. Now, I do think that the house in a conventional loan probably would get an appraisal higher than 475 and that VA appraiser is conservative looking at some of the things she did bring back and what did I what did I suggest to you to do well you said if you know if you're serious about this appealing it get a conventional loan uh, appraiser to come out and appraise it see what he comes up with yeah but thankfully we didn't even have to do that so uh, yeah and, the, and you don't know that the conventional guy would have come out any higher the good thing is, yeah. is that once your house closes that sets the bar for any other properties in the area so uh so that will so your your value once it once it closes that sets the value so and you said there's a whole bunch of uh of movie people moving in the movie industry moving into that area. Yeah, we've got Pinewood Studios right there. So they're doing all the Marvel films. Um you know, we're talking um everything that makes hundreds of millions of dollars. The the projects first, there right now weekend. are there's a 1 billion dollar movie project with 40 principal actors going on there now which is unheard of. It's a, it's a worldwide record. But then in the same town we've got The Walking Dead. 
Um, so the movie industry is coming to town. People from California are used to paying some pretty big premiums. So they're putting in a, a community across the street. I think it's 1,300 doors, 1,300 mm-hmm. family units. And we're talking 600 apartments. And then the rest of it is all housing. Um, and those are going to go, you know, 1,200 square feet in the $300,000 range up to a million dollar homes. So I think once they build that and sell it, everyone's home value is going to go up, especially those of us that are five miles away on 11 acres. Um, so I, I think it's a pretty safe bet, even if the appraisal doesn't meet. Uh, even looking at the five acre, you know, uh, the homes on five acres in, in um, subdivisions that are brand new, they're, they're bringing the mid fours. So I think that our home value will only go up over the next two years. And I think, and I think, uh, you know, not everybody listening is listening, looking for a 5,200 square foot house no, um, or anything on 10 acres. But the concept being is the appraiser is there to protect the buyer as well as the lender who's, who's lending in it. And so if you're, if you're looking for, if you're looking for a house and you run into that, cause sometimes I've seen, I've seen uh, a few times in the last week, where people are going, hey, it's listed at, at 282. What should I offer? And I'm looking at the comps. I'm going, man, this thing's worth more than that. It's worth more than that. I, but but sometimes sellers will put out a price uh, low to get more bids, to get more bids so they know. In competition with yeah, one another. To get the competition yeah. and say, hey, we're not taking any offers until after our open house because they know they're going to have multiple bids and they want to drive it up and they want to catch attention by listing it that low. And uh, and this guy bid 295 on one and 300 on the house four doors down and and lost them both and uh somebody outbid him and uh so it's but keep everything in perspective keep everything in perspective you should be dealing with a good realtor that will help you out and a good lender that will give you that'll keep you in uh uh keep you in in perspective because it's easy to get caught up in the in the emotion of it and especially if you're buying a house to live in it should be a fun thing it should be certainly you should be out there shopping and finding something that's that's uh, it's exciting to do. And, you know, you should have I do it thousands of times a year. You guys do it four or five times in your life. And uh, so I try to at Wholesale Capital, we try to guide you towards, hey, this is what to expect. Don't get too worried about this. Make sure you've looked at lots of houses before you, you know, it's, hey, if, if I tell you you're qualified at 350000 go look at 10 houses at 350000 the community that you're looking for. And by the time, and even if the first house is the perfect house in the perfect neighborhood for the perfect price, you won't know it until you see, when you see nine other ones in the same, in the same basic area, you know, which one is, is the good deal. And you know, which the one is the, is the house for you. Well, and that's what we did too. You know, once we saw that price gap so high and we didn't know what he would come back at for a new selling price, we went and looked at three more homes that were as comparable as we could find. And what we saw is that it wasn't there. The money wasn't there. You know, these were much smaller homes in much worse lots and mm-hmm. the fours, and there wasn't, uh, you know, yeah, a hundred thousand dollars to get so much more out of the house we bought made a lot of sense. And you, you also have some some special uh, some special needs with uh, you, you're you're a double amputee, so you've got well. And there's the I need to be able to kill deer and shoot guns out my back porch too. So that was the main. Can you? <laughs> yes, I can. Maybe not legally, but the neighborhood won't tell. I was gonna say uh, talking to Andrew Botrell, who were. Uh, who were uh, helping uh, Gary Sinise build a house, a uh, smart home for? He was talking about the same thing, sitting on his back porch, being able to pop off, uh, pop off uh, coyotes and stuff from his his back well, porch in San he's, Diego. He's in California, so he's got an uphill battle on that if he wants to do it legally. In Georgia, we can actually own firearms to do that with. So, well, in California, we can too. It's just 
Not as easy. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not as bad as Chicago, though. Well, and not as dangerous. But we can't buy bullets. You got to have background check before you can buy bullets now. Yeah, that's because uh, we allow anybody, anybody that whether or not you can spell USA to vote. But that's another. You know, we were talking about. Maybe we'll get to that. Hey, but we got a, we got about uh, five more minutes in this in this segment. Let's talk about some stuff that's going on yeah, let's uh, in go. the country, and let's uh, see what kind of arguments we can get into. So, uh, immigration developments uh, this week. There's a lot happening on uh, on that front. On Monday, Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly uh, released two memos implementing the president's border security and immigration enforcement improvement policies, and the enforcement of the immigration laws to serve the national interest. In them, Kelly promised to hire 10,000 immigration and customs enforcement agents and officers. Uh, ICE, for uh, for those of you that have always wondered what uh, ICE stands for, uh, hire 5,000 border patrol agents, plan and design and construct a U.S.-Mexico border wall, uh, regardless of who's paying for it, uh, prioritize criminal illegal immigrants and others for deportation, which will now include those convicted or charged of any criminal offense or those who have abused any public welfare program, which is good for us, uh, for us California people who are tired of paying uh, for people to live on the dole. End to catch and release policies under which illegal immigrants subject to deportation may be allowed to abscond and fail to appear at removal hearings. We were talking about that. You want to yeah. explain? You want to explain to everybody in your words what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, my, in my opinion, this higher ten thousand immigrations. Uh, Customs agents, 5,000 more Border Patrol agents, that is a move towards securing your border infinitely more than a wall. And I'm not trying to get into a, an argument over the wall. I'm not putting myself out there as anti-wall. I just, I am pro-securing the border, and I'm pro-securing the border in, in ways that will be effective. So I spent time in Texas. I spent time um, speaking with um, actually game wardens there, where Governor Perry sent these game wardens down to the Rio Grande to aid in border protection. Uh, it's kind of a thumb in the eye to Obama and some of his amnesty policies. And here's what people need to understand about catch and release. When people come across the border, if they make it to our land, the only people we can legally send back right away are Mexican citizens that we're sending back to Mexico. And that's because of a special agreement we have with the Mexican government. And so right now we have our own system rigged against us. Right now uh, we provide due process to people, even those that aren't citizens, when they step foot on our our land. And so what we do is we say, we're going to give you a court date and we're going to let you go and you show up at that court date and we'll decide if you're legally here or not. Well, that court date by average is two to four years away. So by then they've got a new identity if they're here and going to participate in the illegal immigration. And a new social security number. Exactly. Right? So this catch and release isn't isn't it's it's intercept and and tie our hands and we can't do anything. So uh, you know even these uh, basically game wardens that go down there if they're patrolling on the Rio Grande, all that they can't legally. They can't do anything unless people ask for help. If they ask for help and they get them in the boat, they can take them back to the Mexican side. But I believe even then, it's only Mexican citizens. So they're only really there to show a force. So in other words... So if they're from Guatemala or Honduras and they came through they gotta Mexico... They got to come on in. They got to come on in. They, we can't do anything else. Unless we can deport them back to their country, which costs more money than letting them stay here. Say, hey, they came from Mexico as far as our city. There's only two, there's only two sides to the Rio Grande, Mexico and uh, Texas. And so here's another thing, too. I've got two family members, my sister and my uncle, in a town, Dalton, Georgia, that has a large illegal, illegal immigrant, immigrant population. Both of them have had 
uh, head-on collisions with an illegal immigrant that took that jumped out and ran away. Didn't even check to see if they were okay. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of cultural problems we have with illegal immigration. The, the fact, the shadows argument. But what we need to be honest about this, and uh, you know, research and data has shown that whatever money we spend on social programs, we probably make up on cheap labor. So we have to look at it from more than just a financial and a more ethical decision. Do we want a system that puts people in a place where they jump out of their vehicle and run away when they're in an auto accident? That's not participating in our country and our community. So we have to fix this in a way that whomever it is here and however we decide they get here, we do it in a way that, that, that they're a part of our country or, or, or they don't come here at all. That's really the only options we should be putting out there. I think, uh, I think if uh, we make E-Verify and say, hey, the, if there's no jobs here, if there's no jobs here, if you don't, have a, if you don't come in legally – then they're not coming because the the Mexican immigrants typically come here to work. Well, and the jobs is a big part of it. You know, it's a part of my culture growing up. I saw my town become bilingual because the jobs were there. Mm-hmm. Um, and But then, you know, if you can't provide a process for them to come here legally and work those jobs, then they get taken advantage of in those jobs. So, uh, you know, it goes full circle. It, it, we've got to do this right to not only protect our country and our own sovereignty, but also anyone that ends up here in any way, shape, or form. In my, and in my opinion, the wall, uh, whether, it, whether it stops or it's, a, it's symbolic of, of making it easier to patrol, and we need to, we, need to seal the, we need to secure the border before we start sending people out because they're just coming right back. Well, in, in my opinion, securing the border means looking at these laws and policies and, and making sure that there's something we can actually implement. What's the point in hiring 15,000 more people if our laws and policies remain, hey, you're here? Okay, we'll see you in four years on this random court day. Uh, correct. Well, we're going to talk about this more after uh, five minutes of traffic and weather and uh, commercials. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Ed Hoffman and Joey Jones on part two of the main event. We'll be right back. Don't go away. And welcome back to the disco that is the main event. My name's Ed Hoffman, President of Wholesale Capital Corporation, your local direct mortgage lender. We talked about real estate on this show. That's a first in a while. Hey, if you're interested in getting involved in any of the fantastic opportunities in real estate, you need uh, help with refinancing, buying, or reverse mor- that reverse mortgage thing, call me, 855-640-2020, 855-640-2020. Hey, uh, here with my guest, Joey Jones, live in studio. Welcome back again, Joey. Absolutely, thanks for having me. I'm glad you uh, glad you flew all the way in here because we're gonna have some fun this weekend raising some money for some uh, for wounded vet veteran uh, uh, causes. WCCCharities.org. If you want to learn about it, we've been talking about we've been talking about immigration and we talk about the the wall and uh, and what's going on uh, on Thursday. Secretary Kelly and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson met with the Mexican government. It was expected they'd get a chilly reception because of these actions, because the actions of uh, of uh, of what uh, Secretary Kelly has put forth that we talked about in the first part, and basically ending catch and release and the other details. And it was expected to get chilly reception, but that wasn't what ended up making the news. Instead, it was Kelly telling the Mexican government that the U.S. would not be using military the military to protect the border, which seemed to contradict what President Trump said at the meeting with the manufacturing manufacturing CEOs the same day. Um, and the and we'll let's go to what the CNN pundits say, and then we'll talk about it. 
president. Get the bad dudes out of the country. They're the bad ones. It's a military operation. Maybe he was being conversational and maybe he didn't mean it technically using our men and women in uniform. Maybe what he's referring to is to the 10 to 15,000 border enforcement agents that they're going to have to hire at a cost of millions and millions of dollars to enforce uh, to enforce immigration laws. And that is, I think, maybe, I have no idea what he was talking about. Again, they're not the military. Again, they're, right. they would be they would be border enforcement. Uh, I think that when John Kelly, when you know retired General John Kelly says there will be no military involvement, uh, he's the guy running the department. Right. Also, the person with the purse strings, you know, you've got a John McCain who is the chair of Senate Armed Forces Committee. Good luck trying to get the militarization of immigration uh, through a John McCain. You know, one of those one of those sounded almost like she was. Uh, being well, you know, he said military, but maybe he meant this. We played that so you can hear the media reaction to Trump using the word military. Hours later in the White House daily press briefing, Sean Spicer uh, clarified what the president meant by the word. The president was using that as an adjective. It's happening with precision um, and in a manner in which it's very doing, being done very, very clearly. I think we've made it clear in the past, and Secretary Kelly reiterated it, what kind of operation this was. But the president was clearly describing the manner in which this was being done. Um, and so just to be clear on, on his use of that phrase, um, and I think the way it's being done by all accounts is, in, is being done with very much very, a high degree of precision um, and, and in a flawless manner in terms of making sure that the orders are carried out and it's done in a very streamlined and efficient manner. Do you think uh, do you think this means means anything too terrible there, Joey? Well, I think that in the current climate uh, in situation where you have a president that's really hot on you know, crying faults or fake news, uh, and you also have a president that's really intent on shooting from the cuff, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned here. I think one is that uh, the media is going to jump on every opportunity they have uh, to pick apart words, but two, it's it's evidence of how increasingly important it is for our president to understand what it is he's going to say before he says it. Um, you know, I'm going to take Sean Spicer at his word. I've not heard the president dispute his explanation of the use of military. But at face value, the media has every opportunity there to go in and say, what are you talking about? You're going to use the military to enforce immigration law. We That's not really how this government works. So, um, you know, I think that it should be a lesson learned for the administration, and quite frankly, for the president himself. Uh, I would I would agree. You know, it's uh, you can't. You can't be, you can't say, hey, you know what, this is what he meant. Yeah, but this is what he said. I understand that argument. At the same time, I understand that, you know, it's sometimes sometimes the word is not. I'm just amazed that CNN, that uh, Gloria Borger was actually sounded like she was forgiving him for using the word military. And, well, you know what? Trump's intentions. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Obviously, we know we have a problem. I think, uh. I think, uh, you know, people say, hey, we don't need the wall. We need to secure the border. I think um, the wall actually gives us and gives us a uh, makes it easier for less people to 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 guard, to secure the border and say, hey, it's going to if it's going to take 10 billion dollars to do it, you know, and 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 manning and putting uh, personnel down there is going to cost. A hundred million. Well, in you know, in twenty years, it's it's paid for itself, or whatever the math is. I'm pull, I'm just pulling numbers out of the air. Had we done this twenty years ago or uh, thirty years ago, it would be easier 
for us to spend less money and still be more effective uh, uh, securing the border. And at some point, we have to spend the money. It's just like, hey, if we raise the price of minimum wage to a certain point, all the fast food places are going to buy are going to invest in those kiosks as long as it as long as uh, pimply faced high school kids don't cost very much to flip burgers then it doesn't make any sense to make the investment in in the technology to have it self serve um, it's all it's all basic it's all basic numbers there and you know what I, I read this little satire and I'll, and let me preface this this news break by calling this satire <laughs> President Trump announces the sale of California to Mexico. Washington Associated Press at 12:15 today President Trump disclosed that he has reached an agreement with Enrique Peña Nieto, president of Mexico, which prov- provides for the sale of substantially all of the state of California to the country of Mexico. President Trump noted that this deal, which he claims is the largest in his real estate, uh, the largest real estate deal ever, is a win-win for everyone involved. One of the benefits, he says, will highlight during a primetime address from the Oval Office later this evening, which will include using the proceeds received by the U.S. from from Mexico to, one, pay for the wall, fulfilling yet another campaign promise, a wall which will now include the length of the eastern border of California. Number two, fund all the infrastructure spending in the remaining 49 states. And three, pay to relocate 67 Republicans that currently reside in California. Well, I guess it's me and 66 others. He also noted the federal money saved from the reduction of California citizens on U.S. social programs will allow those social programs to be cash positive in less than three years. Mexican President Nieto announced that he has already introduced a bill to to the Mexican Congress asking to change his country's name to Mexical. <laughs> other benefits president intends to discuss during his evening's primetime address will include California will now be able to act as a sanctuary state within Mexico, Mexico, noting that there is much more room for refugees who will find the climate in the state of California more desirable than the climate in the U.S. cities such as New York City, Detroit, or Chicago. This goes on and on. I think I'll post this on my website because this is pretty funny. But yes, that was satire, folks. Trump really didn't do that, but I thought it fit in there. And I enjoyed reading it myself. So is that a bit of wishful thinking that you're putting out there? I mean, you live here, so you don't want to live in Mexico, you know, do you? I do, li- I do live here, and quite frankly, I had already discussed. You know, Don and I went down to uh, Australia about three or four years ago, and on our way in customs, uh, he said, are you here for business or pleasure? I said, well, we're here for pleasure, but we're also scoping out a scoping out this country to see if it's a good place to live in case our our country goes down the toilet. He goes, well, what if we don't want you here? <laughs> and I go, well, <laughs> I guess that the answer is that one then. Uh, I guess then we're not coming. But uh, um, I also said that if Hillary won, if Hillary won that I w- and Texas was going to secede from the union, uh, I would consider moving to Texas. Although it's you would think it's the same climate because of where it stands on the globe, but it's a lot more humid than it is here. Isn't oh it? yeah, where Texas? Uh, you know, it's what depends, I hear. It depends on where you are in Texas. I mean, I moved to Austin, and everyone complained about humidity. Well, being from Georgia, I didn't think it was humid in Austin at all. But if you get down towards uh, Houston and the coastal region, it's very humid. So you get out to West Texas, and you you know you wish humidity was a thing. Uh, so it's just real big. What's in West Texas? Uh, exactly. Nothing. Uh, nothing. Yeah. So where where is the where is the good weather in Texas? Uh, East Texas, Northeast Texas is is kind of Louisiana. You know that kind of I've climate. Been, I've been to Louisiana before, and it's real humid there. Yeah, it's it's humid over there. But like I said, I'm from Georgia, so real humidity. Uh, you know that what what they call humidity in Texas and North Texas, I don't think is all that humid. Um, but you know what I like about Northeast Texas is. Um, 
well, for one, it's easy access to the interstate highway system, but more importantly than that is just that you can see green trees, and it's real trees. It's more than 20 feet tall, uh-huh. uh, and so it feels like so you're— So it doesn't look like you're on the prairie? <laughs> no, exactly. You're in the forest? Yeah, I like uh, I like being in California. I can uh, drive to the beach in an hour. I can drive to the mountains in an hour, although my mountain with 30 feet of snow on it is six hours away, so uh, that would be Mammoth where we were skiing last weekend, and it was— Got my five-year-old granddaughter on skis. <laughs> was great. So let's talk about the travel ban developments. Uh, we talked about this two weeks ago, and you uh, you had suggested this. Um, the travel ban, which is undergoing revision, we should know the final details this week. Of course, we were supposed to hear it last week. According to the source reports, we can expect the revised executive order. So so two weeks ago, you said, hey, you know what? Uh, Trump should have should have thought about this and just rewrite rewrite the executive order. And uh, he must have been listening to the main event because he, right <laughs> then when he, he said, "Hey, I'm not going to appeal the 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 Ninth District Court of Appeals uh, ban on this, and we'll just rewrite it." So, so the new the new executive order is supposed to target travelers from the same seven uh, seven countries: Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. Drop the previous indefinite suspension of Syrian refugees while maintaining same the same fifty percent reduction in refu- refugee ad- admissions. Which I don't know why we need to do that because refugees from Syria. I don't. Why would why do we have to take the refugees from Syria? Why don't we just build some place over there? Why, if, they, if they can't be in Syria, whatever's next to Syria is certainly closer than the United States. And why do we want to let these people in here? We don't know who they are. Um, I'll let you make a comment on that. And then the, the last part was make legal permanent residents and visa holders exempt from detention at airports, which was one of the one of the things that um, that you had a problem. Here's what Sean Spicer is saying now about the revisions being made to the order. I think we've been very clear about understanding what the court said um, and trying to tailor that specifically while achieving the same goals of keeping America safe and ensuring that people don't come into this country that seek to do us harm. It is written in a way that is clear and consistent with U.S. code and the authority that the president has to protect the nation. And your comments. Well, I, I mean, I do not take credit for this idea. I think someone in the administration mentioned this might be what they will do. And I said that's exactly what they should do. Um, simply because continuing to fight that court case. Is I that mean, called plagiarism? No, not at all. In politics, it's called paying attention okay. um, and jumping onto a good idea when you see one and advising in that direction and anecdotal ideas. Um, now, when you look at the specifics of what they're trying to do with this next executive order, you know, I still take issue with the fact that, um, you know, one of the largest arguments against the original executive order is that these seven countries aren't producing to date immigrants that are doing things bad. So I don't I'm not saying don't put these seven countries in there, but why not put some of the countries that do have bad people, like say the actors from nine eleven. Um, you know, the the premise there from the administration is these seven countries are the ones that don't have proper vetting on their end. So I believe the verbiage of the executive order, if that's the case, needs to allude to that exactly too. A proper vetting process. That's what the executive order needs to be founded in, not the people or where they're coming from uh, specifically. Uh, and so 
you know, a more, a more broad executive order that says countries that, you know, the State Department or whomever deems to not have a proper vetting process, we can't accept refugees from there until that process meets these requirements. Well, now you've added enough specifics and not address the people, country of origin even. Um, and you can go and address those countries of origin through policy instead of the executive order. I think to me that's more legally sound and makes more sense. And certainly it uh, protects from the, the, ninth, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court. And they, uh, and then it's, uh, then it's not deemed as, uh, as uh, stereotyping or uh, racial profiling. Oh, racial. Well, you know, I don't know that the original executive order had any of that in it. What the what the circuit court did is they brought his comments from the campaign into their court decision. I think that's unethical and irresponsible. So from that aspect, I fully support the administration. Uh, however, you get a second chance at this. Don't give them the opportunity. Focus on the vetting process, which is your justification to begin with, um, and then that doesn't enact any characteristics of any people. Yeah, we think about the guy who was uh, was it Northern California, the the guy that uh, that drove his car into drove his car into a crowd and then got out and started stabbing people. Was that what uh, what was that Berkeley up in Berkeley? UC Berkeley, yeah, and uh, that guy apparently was one of the refugees that came over that was a minor and say, Hey, he's a minor. So we didn't have to vet him. And, and we let people in. And that's kind of the premise is, Hey, if we can't know who these people are, let's not let them in. Well, and you have to know how we're accepted. So the, what's happening specifically are we're saying these countries don't have any records on the people that they're sending here for whatever reason, they're in turmoil, civil war, what, what have you. So, it would be different if we were taking those people, vetting them, and saying, come on into our country. We forfeited that entire process to the U.N. So these seven countries aren't vetting these people. We're not vetting these people. The U.N. is what's vetting these people, and we're saying we don't trust the U.N. to vet them correctly. So that's where the problem is. Do you? Um, I would say that we're not represented in this in any way, shape, or form, so that bothers me. That, uh, hey, if the, the, UN is, the U.N. doesn't, you know, do they care? Do they care what comes into our country? I've, part of it does. <laughs> yeah, you know, our part. But if in the same breath we're criticizing the U.N. and telling them to pay, you know, tens or hundreds of millions more per country, then, um, you know, we don't have the best relationship there to begin with. Uh, maybe we shouldn't give them full full say on anything that has to do with our own sovereignty. I would say that shouldn't anyway. Exactly. Say, hey, we should be we should be the ones in charge of protecting. I mean, in my opinion, in my opinion, the only thing the government is supposed to be doing is protecting us from our foreign uh, enemies and enforcing the laws and let the let the free market do everything else. Well, you're a businessman. Well, this country runs on money. <laughs> this is a capitalistic society. So, uh, so people are talking about this at CPAC, and just because he's the mysterious figure in the Trump administration, that media, the media loves to vilify. I thought I'd also play a clip from Steve Bannon talking at CPAC on Thursday. Here's Bannon alluding to the developments we've been talking about. Um, Joy, I'll get your input because Bannon also mentions Department of Defense budget and Secretary of Defense uh, James Mattis. It was certainly the first, I think, the first two EOs that you've started to see implemented here over the last couple of days under General Kelly. And that is the rule of law is going to exist when you talk about our sovereignty and you talk about immigration. General Kelly and Attorney General uh, Sessions are adamant, you know, that and you're going to start to see, I think, with the defense budget we're going to talk about next week when we bring the budget out and also with uh, certain things about the, the plan on ISIS and, and what General Mattis and these guys think. I think you'll start to see the other part of that. 
your comments? I, yeah, you know, I mean, I, well, first of all, I think a lot of the people named there are good choices in the cabinet. And I think they're doing a good job from what we can tell. Not a whole lot has happened. It's only been five weeks. Exactly. I think when you start talking about as a conservative or Republican president, you start talking about the defense budget as evidence of bringing in conservative policies. That's chasing a red herring. We don't even know what the defense budget is. It's the only department we don't have a budget on. Um, and quite frankly, Republicans are split between team party factions that are Pro sequestration, which was an Obama administration idea, to um, to uh, you know uh, more hawkish Republicans who say invest into our defense and don't ask any questions. So I think that that's not necessarily the best evidence on on where we are with things. I, w- I would agree, but I think the sequestration was was not an Obama administration idea. I think it was uh, was something Obama came up with, thinking that the Republicans were going to fold. Because they were going to well, avoid it. so sequestration is something that's been done multiple times over the over the course, or at least put into some sort of. Uh, it's been a fail-safe trigger uh, that hasn't been used as much, but it's been alluded to or put into legislation uh, in budgets uh, throughout the, the history of our country. But sequestration, as we know it today, as this do this or sequestration will take an effect. Uh, you know, Jay, Jay Carney brought it up in a press conference, and that's really where it where it gained its footing. Um, and so I've, I've done a little research on that specifically. And the idea was, uh, you know, if you don't pass the budget we like, then sequestration will come into effect and we'll enact sequestration. And so, uh, you know, it goes back to when the government shut down. And, you know, it, to me, it was a very chicken in the egg. You know, the, the, the Republicans passed a budget they liked, but the president wasn't going to sign it. So the president said, no, pass a budget I like or or there'll be no budget. And so who... Who's in the right there? You know, mm-hmm. Democrats say that the Republicans refusing to work, and Republicans say we did our job. You just don't like it, and so. And one of the reasons, and one of the reasons, maybe Trump is in the White House today is because a lot of Republicans were were tired of seeing um, the Republicans with the good ideas, but they didn't have the they didn't have the the ability to press execute on the you know to hey you got some good ideas make them work make them work, push them forward. And they wouldn't hold, they wouldn't hold the line on, on their own, their own, uh, their own, uh, values. Well, you know, what happens when you run for Congress, right? You have these issues that are important to you. You get there, you're at the bottom of some totem pole because now we have a a Congress that really holds party lines more than probably ever before. And so you say, well, I can't work on that now. So I'm gonna put that on the back burner. I'll tow the party line and eventually I'll have that opportunity. And what happens while you're up there, I believe a lot of times you just eventually lose sight of those original issues and convictions. Um, and we see that all the time. You lose your fire. And and we see people that say, well, if I don't tow the party line, the party will go against me. I won't be in Congress anymore, and then I can't do anything. If I tow the party line or if I do the popular thing here, then I can slowly but surely itch away at these things that are important to me in my district. And unfortunately, that to me, that that is what creates a career politician and an ineffective one. And a apathetic one, I think at some point they get they get well, you know, it's really not that important. I came in here with with into Congress with fire in my gut, and I wanted to make some changes. And now I've kind of seen how things work, and maybe it's maybe it's maybe it's really not that important. The most important thing is just to keep my job, keep my paycheck, and, and I think then, we, I think we have a lot of people in Congress like that that need to be uh, 
replaced. Well, and on and, both sides of the aisle, you know the and when the pendulum swings that direction, what's it going to do? It's going to swing back the other way, where you have someone like Ted Cruz who takes every opportunity on an issue that he knows he can't win to demonize other Republicans. So it goes both ways there. And really, what we need are if you have 435 members of Congress, need 435 different opinions. And when 51% of those opinions can fall in the same place, maybe we'll pass a law or change one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's what I want to see from Congress is uh, action that actually makes sense for, the, for this country and not just uh, for, uh, for partisan reasons. I would agree. Um, so here, here's one, one thing I want to cover in the last couple of minutes. Monday, Whittier police officer Keith Boyer was killed by repeat convict Michael Mejia. Um, in a shootout following a crash involving a, involving a stolen vehicle. Okay, court records show that Mejia was sentenced in 2010 to four years in state prison for robbery, convicted in July 2014 of grand theft auto and attempting to steal a vehicle. He was given another two-year sentence for violating terms of his sentence and committing robbery, with a special enhancement of an additional two years for being a gang member. That four-year sentence was reduced by 15% for good behavior. The judge gave Mejia 302 days for time already served in jail. He returned to prison July 30th, 2014 on new charges of grand theft auto and vehicle theft. He was sentenced to two-year two year, uh, uh, term to serve two two-year terms concurrently. He was discharged from Pelican Bay Prison, which is a California maximum security prison up in Northern California on April, 20, April 19th, 2016. Three months later, in July, he violated terms of his release and got another 10 days in jail. He was arrested again in September after authorities moved to revoke his community supervision, then arrested again January 2017 and sentenced to 40 days in jail. He was out again in 10 days, then rearrested February 2nd. He was sentenced to 10 days, released February 11th, and stole his cousin's car this week, resulting in a police chase where he gunned down Officer Boyer. Um, Here's a monologue. Here's a monologue by your friend, Joey, uh, Greg Gutfeld. According to the lieutenant in charge of the investigation, the suspect had a long rap sheet but was paroled from jail a week or so ago. My guess it's the likely excuse of overcrowding. It's odd that when faced with too many felons, the instinct is not to build more prisons but let the felons go. Besides killing Officer Boyer and shooting another officer, the 26-year-old gang member killed his cousin and stole his vehicle, which he later crashed. Look at those tattoos. Officer Boyer was responding to that accident. It's a tragic reminder that actions have consequences. Release a thug into the community and innocent people get hurt and some of our very best die. Actually, the criminals aren't just the freed monsters, but those who free them. If they knowingly slid those metal doors open and freed the fiend and assumed you could bear the risk, then sanctuary state my ass. Talk about preposterous priorities. Their infrastructure is literally crumbling. They can't house their bad guys. They've got this huge gang problem, but they have the money to hire Eric Holder to resist Mm -hmm. Trump's immigration enforcement. Mm -hmm. Talk about dreamers. They need to wake up. Hey, folks. Greg Gutfeld's talking about California, our state. We all need to wake up because something's going wrong around here. Hey, we're all out of time. Joey, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks and for thanks having for me. And thanks for flying out for our uh, fundraiser this weekend. I'm excited. Okay. Hey, uh, that's all the time we have for this uh, episode of the main event. My name's Ed Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back again with you next week. The content in this program is not intended to be legal advice. The views expressed are those of Ed Hoffman and his invited guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or policies of Wholesale Capital Corporation. WCC is licensed by the California Bureau of Real Estate Broker License Number 01147747 and California Finance Lenders License Number 603K610. Also licensed in Arizona by the Arizona Department of Financial Institutions. MB Number 096199. 
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.